From Hong Kong, this is Mea Kupa, the Lessons Learned from Startup podcast, based on the Postmodern Conference, where founders, investors, lawyers, and mentors share their stories about working on, with, or for startups. I'm Jeffrey Brewer, and today we talk to Kosta Kolev, an engineer by training and an entrepreneur by nature. He calls himself an operator that loves building new products and teams from the ground up. He has built and launched new businesses and products across London, Hong Kong, and Berlin. Welcome, Costa. Hey, Jeffrey. Costa, can you tell me, how did you end up in startups? How did I end up in startups? Um, look, for me, I, I ended up, uh, I'm originally Bulgarian, but moved to the UK for, for school. Uh, ended up going to university here in a place called Warwick. Um, I really hated it. Uh, university wasn't for me. I just found that it was... Uh, yeah, I just wasn't learning the things that I wanted to learn. And, and, and quite frankly, I was just ended up getting like quite frustrated and a little bit depressed by the whole situation. And somehow I ended up stumbling into a few different entrepreneurship communities, like I think most people do at university. Um, that, um, and then just one thing led to another. And I kind of like fell into this, this world of technology where you can build things really quickly and you can ship them online overnight um, and you can reach lots of different people around the world. And there was just something about that that, got me really excited um the fact that it was a, a lot fewer barriers to jump into technology and startups than there were in uh, other pursuits shall we say okay and the university that you were doing at that point what was your major oh uh, so yeah i was a mechanical um engineer by training i guess yeah okay and what made you drawn to that entrepreneurship was it because it's in running in the family or it was just you were bored about mechanical engineering or uh -huh. something else well, I mean, I think it's uh, to some extent running in the family, uh, maybe, I guess you could say that. Um, my grandparents set up their own business back in back in Bulgaria when I was growing up. Um, but I think it was it was it was much more around the environment that you're in. Right. So I think uh, traditional engineering um, in many ways is a quite old fashioned industry. Um, so you need to get in there. You need to get accredited, much like a lawyer or an accountant. And so your ability to actually really do anything meaningful and have any kind of impact, it actually, it's a, it's a pretty long road. Um, and because it's a fairly traditional industry, I think a lot of times, um, yeah, it just really, really takes a while. You have to spend a lot of time in the industry until you actually earn any kind of like respect or kind of ability to have any kind of input. Um, and yeah, I think like I sort of tried to say earlier, um, I think technology and, and, and sort of digital technology in particular is much more meritocratic and accessible in that kind of way where I think people don't really care about these kind of accolades as much. Um, so the barriers to entry are a lot lot smoother to some extent. Right. Yeah, I get a lot of that because I'm <laughs> originally also by training a mechanical engineer. So um, there we go. I didn't know that about you. <laughs> yeah. I, so you were exposed to entrepreneurship in university, mm -hmm. but then still, like, what did you do? Did you start a startup or a student startup? Or what was your first uh, you know, voyage into that entrepreneurship? Yeah, so yeah, first first swing uh, at um, startups was, uh, the first company was a company called Foodie, um, basically, like, trying to, like, look at food waste and sort of, like, cooking. And um, it, was, it was a really interesting first experience, uh, managed to raise, like, a tiny amount of um, seed funding um, through like a few different programs etc tried to build the product failed miserably had no idea what I was doing um, and then sort of one thing led to another and then there was another business another opportunity and everything just kind of snowballed until I kind of somehow ended up trying to build an IoT startup which kind of led me to Hong Kong and meeting you so that's 
that's how the snowball uh, rolled, shall we say. Um, I still get a lot of entrepreneurs that want to do something in the food waste industry. Um, It's already been tried a lot. Some of the people are still working on it. What would you say to people who want to do something about food waste and what were your learnings from that? To be honest, like it's... I mean, like it's, it's it's almost like a lifetime ago. This was like sort of eight, nine years. Um, so I think the... You're, you're I, not that old. No, no, no. But I mean, like in, in, in terms of technology <laughs> and sort of like, uh, you know, it's I, I, I have to be honest, I haven't really kept in touch with the industry and what's happening there. I guess a, a few things that really come to mind is that now probably with COVID, um, a lot of like the food sharing options where you're trying to like eliminate na- waste from a peer-to-peer perspective, Probably a lot of those startups right now, I imagine, are struggling quite a bit um, as we kind of like enforce more social distancing, etc. Um, but yeah, that's that's maybe the only thought that comes to mind on 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 the subject. Mm, okay, and you already mentioned then you were involved in an IoT startup which brought you to Hong Kong. Can you elaborate a little bit more about that one? Yeah, sure. So um, you know, if, if 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 I think about failures, the the, the first. Uh, Kind of like food tech startup really failed because I had no idea what I was doing in terms of like building products and technology. Um, and the second one was basically I was trying to build Nest um, or an equivalent of like a smart home thermostat for the UK market um, and ended up sort of, you know, trying to to raise a little bit of money because, as you know, hardware is hard um, and uh, sort of like the cost of starting a hardware business and kind of getting that first prototype out. Um, especially at the time, it was you know sort of 2013, 2014. Um, it was still fairly fairly complicated. I think that was the the height of the Kickstarter movement to some extent. Um, but yeah, I think that the, the second business really the the learning there was that we were trying to fundraise, and just as that was happening, Nest got acquired by Google for 3.4 billion, or I can't remember exact number. Um, but basically, that just completely changed the. Um, the dynamic of the market and all of a sudden even though you know there was no real plans for them to expand to the uk market in any meaningful time frame it really just completely changed the the conversations and and, and i think the approach of investors um in the space when google acquires your your, your biggest competitor okay that of course gives a lot of data points um <laughs> well you were doing that you were doing that from hong kong smart home thermostat what was the the reason why that you already said hardware uh, is your heart, but what was the biggest thing at that point? What what you learned or what you struggled with where, while doing that? Because it wasn't your first rodeo, right? So yeah, what was at that point the things that you didn't encounter previously that you really counted here that didn't make it go? Mm. Yeah, so so I'd say you know like uh, the the real lessons that I t- took first time around was don't build technology that you fundamentally don't understand and i think second time around, i was like okay i'm a mechanical engineer i understand a little bit about the technology here i've done a lot of research i've learned how to code in the meantime as well um so like my my level of competence on the technical side increased quite well and i, I was starting to feel quite uh, confident in that albeit you know like manufacturing is still still very difficult and i'm sure there would have been a lot of challenges further ahead but i guess like the key thing that, that took me by surprise there was really just the sometimes the, the market moves completely outside of your control and um, you know maybe black swan event isn't <laughs> isn't quite the right way to kind of phrase it but it's just that you know you can never that there's certain externalities around the timing in the market and what's happening with your competitors that are very much out of your control um, and unfortunately I think that you know that especially when you're working in venture-backed businesses it's very often you know 
a, a huge factor in terms of what's happening um, or, the, or, or what's perceived to be happening in the market uh, based on other investors. Um, and and yeah, that, I'd say that's probably like the biggest learning, you know, like all the things that are outside of your control in terms of timing. Um, yeah, either it's a good time or it's not a bad time or... <laughs> Okay, external markets, that kind of thing, then that is usually one or multiple things that make you decide to pull the plug on this. Would that be at that point for you because it was going to take too long to get your product to market or was it enabled to raise additional money or what yeah, was so, it? So, so yeah, I mean, like literally the, the seed funding for that kind of completely fell through um, and I just really couldn't see the next opportunity of um, just like continuing to push to try and fundraise. Um, for me, it was just kind of a little bit of a lost battle, having spent such a long time trying to, you know, find the, the original set of investors at the time, et cetera, et cetera. So really, yeah, just sort of trying to, to, to bring that round together and it kind of like falling apart due to what's happening in the market. I was like, OK, so, well, if, if I've spent all this time speaking to these guys and now they're not interested because the market's moved, do I really want to invest time in like building a new set of relationships and sort of, you know, going on that journey? And I think for me, it was uh, it just kind of felt right to. To pull the plug at that time um i don't think i had the conviction to, to to persevere and continue to find fundraising um albeit if i if i reflect on back on it now um i think the uk market took a really really long time to mature in terms of some of these technologies so it probably would have been a way um but yeah my, my conviction and my perseverance on that one kind of was was, was deflated shall we say um but Usually at that point, when somebody's indeed very motivated to do something, then you know, external market forces won't deter them to do this. So I'm trying to, to find something else that at that point made you decide not to pursue this. Because usually at that point, if they're really, really motivated, mm. uh, yeah, they, they will find a way. I'm always saying that running out of money is not a valid reason for failure. There are always other things at that point that yeah, result in running out of money so yeah what was it for you in this in in this particular case yeah then? yeah no you're right um i think that if, if if i really think about it it's probably just uh my own I, I felt emotionally drained at that point um and i think it was just i i didn't have the the, the emotional juice to keep running and and i think that's actually probably you know what you're touching upon there's is one of the most interesting games that we play in entrepreneurship which a lot of people i think don't necessarily put in these terms but it is a game of like emotional energy and how many times you you know you get knocked down and you go back into the ring and how many rounds you're prepared to like get punched in the face um and i think i just basically had to tap out at that particular moment my my level of energy and and and, and sort of motivation for this was was kind of drained but also i think that you know it's it's an interesting kind of situation because there's always opportunity costs and i think at that time there was just a lot of other interesting stuff to get involved in where it's like okay so like clearly this this fundraising thing isn't isn't going that well so what am i by by continuing to push in this trade like what are the other opportunities that i'm saying no to and would those would would they be more interesting things to learn and grow um because i think at that time in my life it was just like i just i, I couldn't really see i didn't have the conviction or, or or the line of sight to to kind of like see forward what it would mean to actually take this off the ground so when you're like emotionally tired and you can't really see the the silver lining um when you're kind of like looking ahead um, and you have other opportunities on the table where you can kind of like it becomes much more tangible. I think that's that, that's basically like the, the mind state and the headspace that I was I was in, if I'm being honest. Yeah. So you could classify this as a technical knockout. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. Okay. Um, so what was next for you from that? 
from that. Jeez, I'm struggling to remember. Um, I know you were working on uh, Passport X, and after that, you worked for the MIT project in Hong Kong as a program director. Yeah. Was that actually before or after Hack Horizon? Uh, that that was before, yeah. So so I think at that point there was there was a few other bits and bobs in between, and I took a corporate job for a little bit of time, I think, to like recharge the batteries, but realized that really doesn't recharge the batteries at all, um, because you're just dealing with a different flavor of shit that, that isn't that palatable, I think, for for entrepreneurs. Um, and then yeah, there, there, there was a, there was a few things in, in in between, but I think yeah, um, sort of the sort of six to nine months after this, I ended up coming to Hong Kong, and um, I think. What I really wanted to do at that point is I think I kind of got the the technical knockout, I feel, still hadn't necessarily pushed me into just really understanding IoT and, and hardware and manufacturing as deep as I wanted to. So I landed in Hong Kong, and I think the first thing that I did there was um, organize an IoT and robotics kind of conference, which then kind of um, spiraled into me working with MIT on helping them set up the innovation lab there and doing a hardware accelerator and a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, but yeah, I think my... Even though there was a technical knockout in that business, there was still like a really deep fascination with with IoT, which then kind of, you know, I, I wanted to get closer and closer to that world um, in Hong Kong. And that's kind of how how those kind of like things um, spiraled one into the other. And also, as you know, like Hong Kong's a, is an expensive city to live in. Um, so I think I kind of had a little bit of a, an opportunity there to earn some money with MIT and to, and, and to do some interesting, whilst at the same time doing some interesting stuff. So yeah, I think that that's really how the, the next year or 18 months or so really played out for me. Okay. And then uh, you started working on uh, Hack Horizon. That's also where we helped out a little bit. Yeah, yeah. That's that's where we get to meet each other. Uh, can you explain a little bit more about Hack Horizon? Yeah. Okay. So so actually there's a, there's a startup in the middle that I think is worth kind of um, mentioning that kind of, I think, gives will give you a lot more clarity in terms of Hack Horizon, which I don't think is a story that we've, we've kind of talked about before. But um, basically, I had in the UK, I organized a bunch of hackathons with with, with a couple of friends. Uh, and we ended up um, setting uh, setting up a business at that time. Um, you know, and the plan was to run more, more, more hackathons, more accelerators. And I think this was sort of maybe 2014, 2015. Um, and this was, I think, at the the peak of, you know, corporate innovation really getting started. Um, and I think a lot of um, sort of disruptive companies were really on the way up in the US. Um, so there was a lot of kind of like FOMO from, from from the corporate community in terms of technology and innovation. So it was a really good time, for I think, for a lot of people to, you know, work in startups, but also get paid by corporates. And a lot of the accelerators and, and sort of stuff, I think, came out at that time. Um, and so, you know, I, I ended up running a couple of events that made quite a bit of money. Um, they were really fun. We got some press coverage and ended up starting this company with with two friends. Um, and for a variety of reasons in terms of just like, you know, co-founder fit and a difference of ways of working and a difference of kind of like vision, it ended up imploding quite badly. Um, and I ended up stepping away from that business. However, there was just something really, I guess, stuck with me at, in, in, in terms of like on an emotional level, in terms of feeling like I haven't quite closed that chapter of kind of like hackathons, um, uh, in my mind. And with, with, with those particular co-founders, we, we had an interesting journey because we, we ended up, uh, uh, the first hackathon that we did was, was was on a bus. The second one that we did was on a train. Um, and we always joke that, yeah, you know, we should do one on a plane. Um, and for some reason, we could never, uh, pardon the pun, but 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 take that idea forward and, 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 and help it take off. So I think when I came to Hong Kong, there was just something natural that kind of like came to me. Um, partly, I think, to 
prove to myself and, and maybe to like kind of have some emotional closure um, past that kind of um, bad experience with, with those co-founders. But also I think because like Hong Kong had a very, very interesting travel scene in terms of, you know, Hong Kong International Airport, uh, the kind of like travel infrastructure there. So I think those, those kind of things like coalesced in terms of me um, trying to get that uh, off the ground. That's the that's the fullest story that I think we haven't necessarily talked much about before. Okay, and then yeah, of course, a Hack Horizon, a hackathon on a plane. Um, yeah. When I first heard about it, I was like, "That sounds amazing!" And of course, you had the same uh, same idea because that's why you organize it. But mm. is it is it is it amazing in hindsight? In hindsight, without a shadow of a doubt, I think it's it, it's one of the highlights. Um, and I think part of the reason is because it was it was just like a stupid crazy idea um, and off the back of it I think we just were like you know if I think back to all the people that we managed to get to apply for this so we, you know we had a whole recruitment process I think we had like nearly 700 applications for people to come on board we only had 32 spaces so we actually were able to bring together some really quite amazing people um, to take part in in, in, uh, in this whole experience so I think like from a outcomes point of view externally looking I think it was it was definitely at least amazing in terms of talent and, and the people that we we're able to bring together and just like the whole experience itself. Um, and on a personal level, you know, just learn so much. And it was such a such an amazing and ultimately very painful at certain points experience, uh, you know, trying to convince the travel industry why something like this is a good idea. Then because it's I find it fascinating. How do you start something like that? What would be your first thing to attack when you want to organize something like that? What would be your first outreach? Uh, what would be the first thing, the first step? Get a to plane. This? Get a plane. <laughs> uh, yeah. In yeah. one way or another, hijack on the ground, whatever. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think hijacking a plane. So, so ironically, this 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 is part of the like the biggest challenge in that um, you know the word hack and plane together in the same sentence, it took a little bit of um, educating and kind of like taking people in a journey of, of exactly what this means. But I think, you know, the story that we were telling at the time, and I, I think to some extent it still stands, is that travel is a really, really heavy infrastructure uh, cost business. Um, so in, if you want to innovate in the space, it's actually very, very hard um, to, to, to just think about all the different players, all the different interactions, et cetera, et cetera. So we really just wanted to bring together a whole suite of the ecosystem um, together to really think about like what can be done, particularly thinking about digital, um, because obviously the the barrier of implementation for any kind of like digital innovation is a lot lower than any of the hardware innovation. So I think that you know that the whole premise that and, and the whole vision that we're trying to sell is like there's a lot of low hanging fruit in this space using digital technology that can be implemented that can ultimately improve the customer experience without you know, you having to buy new planes, re-engineer, you know, the flow of customers for an airport, et cetera, et cetera. And it was just really thinking about it from, you know, like digital customer experience innovation and how that can be a low cost, but high output um, type type initiative. That was really, I guess, like the story that we were trying to to, to sell at the start. And did that materialize? I mean, it, it you know, it, it took about sort of like 12, 14 months. I'm, I'm even struggling to remember exactly what the timelines were, but it was... You know, it was it was it was a lot of um, just perseverance and having you know conversations with lots of different airlines and lots of different um, airports, and it was just a, a never-ending game of trying to generate enough hype and momentum that it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, you know, so uh, the <laughs> the 
the airline operators would say, you know, we'll be interested if the airports are interested. The airports will say, you know, we'd be interested if the airlines are interested. And it's this constant game uh, of cat and mouse that we played for for, for quite a long time. Um, I think until we, we were able to find a few people in the in in the industry that were a you know open-minded enough to understand the possibilities of of, of what this could do. Um, but B also, you know, had the influence and the pull within their organizations to like make this happen and pull this together. So yeah, it was it was a very, very long game of cat and mouse, thinking through all sorts of different permutations and you know, thinking about what kind of value you can create for for each of the the, the players in the ecosystem. Okay. And eventually it, your dream came true. <laughs> and can you tell me a little bit about the actual event, the actual hackathon? Can you tell a little bit more about how that went and yeah, the challenges there yeah. th that you got. Yeah, so so this is this is tough because I guess I'm, I'm I'm thinking back to something that happened three years ago, which just seems seems like a lifetime ago in many many respects. But um, it was it was it, it was it was tough. It was very very intense as an event from like an operation and organization point of view. You know, we we had people flying in from all sorts of random places in the world. We we, we had to get everyone together in the same place. There was logistics involved. We changed venues like I think 12 or 13 times in 18 hours. Uh, there was immigration. There was passport control. Um, you know, just all the chaos that you can imagine of like trying to herd 40 people from Hong Kong to London um, across multiple different venues and multiple different days. So operationally, logistically, there's like just yeah a never-ending slew of shit that happened in between. And uh, you know for if you speak to to the rest of the team, I'm sure there'll be lots of fun stories that that stick out in different people's minds as we kind of try to divide and conquer this experience. But I think maybe what what would be more interesting in terms of this conversation is that as an organizing team, I have to say at that point we were actually fairly dysfunctional. Um, there was quite a lot of stress in the lead up to the event, and you know at that point, so my girlfriend at the time was also the, one of the co-founders in this business. Uh, we'd ended up broke, breaking up. That was compl complicated as hell. Um, also, you know, ended up having a, a, a fallout for a variety of different reasons in terms of uh, with some of the, some of the rest of the team. So we were basically exhausted and drained, and there was like a lot of like personal conflict uh, across multiple different team members. And so, really, I think we were running on fumes uh, for a lot of that operation. But in many ways, it was it was super amazing because what we'd been spent, you know, the last 12, 18 months, whatever working on it finally come true but actually it was very bittersweet in terms of the way that it came together because of the personal tensions and conflicts along the way in hindsight would there have been things that you could have done before to prevent that or is it just how it goes and there wouldn't have been that much that you could have been doing before that to prevent those challenges uh, i think you know and, and I, we, we so so actually the the, the hack horizon team we had a really Amazing kind of like reunion um, in Prague over Christmas, and we ended up having a, a big reflection on some of the some of the learnings and some of the takeaways from all this. But if I if I'm being honest, I think we were we were all fairly young and and sort of at early stages in our career. And I think part of the challenge in all of this, and if I think about myself as a as, as an entrepreneur, is I was spending so much time working on the operations that I had no headspace to actually think about the people. Um, and so ultimately, the business was going okay. But the people were dysfunctional and the team was dysfunctional. And I think if I'm being honest, I just wasn't in a I, I didn't have enough experience at that time to really be able to navigate some of the leadership challenges and some of the leadership complexities that were required to really do that effectively. And I think over over the years, that's that's one of the things that I'm kind of 
I, I think I've gotten a lot better at as, a, as an entrepreneur and as a leader, which is that the operational stuff, as you become better and better at it, you then have more energy and more headspace to focus on the people. Or at least that's how my journey has taken me. I think, you know, obviously there's some people that are great with people and over time they learn the operational skills. But I think for me, I naturally gravitated to be an operator and then over time learn how to be a leader and, 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 and sort of manage people. But I think, you know, those were, if I was to do it again, I'd probably do things a lot differently. But at the time, I think uh, we all did the best that we could with the the experience that we had uh, we, we had on our shoulders. So does um, that make sense? <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, it definitely does. We're all growing and we're all learning and every single day. And especially when you're when you're young, yeah, you still have to when it comes to people, you haven't met that amount of people. You haven't had really like probably been in a in an environment that you are responsible for people, for staff, for their livelihood and that kind of thing. Yeah. And that especially when you're coming from a student's perspective where everybody's yeah, not responsible for each other and everybody has their own separate part of income or their own, their own separate part of background. But as soon as you st have to do, start doing that in a business type of way, then the expectation become different. People are going to look at you as, as being, I don't know, the boss or at least the leader. And yeah, you haven't really any, yeah, not a lot of experience in, in that. And then, yeah, you I wouldn't say fail, but you're doing di things differently based upon your experience. So, no, I, I definitely get that. But you said that you had a reunion, yeah, which went what I get from you really well. What was the general sense of at that point, say three years after the event? Everybody now has a little bit more experience. Was it yeah. like we should do this again, or like <laughs> no way at all? Uh, glad we did it, but not again. Yeah, no, it's it's funny. I think uh, in in retrospect, I think we're we're all, um, and I hope you know. No, I'm I'm pretty sure everyone else would agree, but we're all very grateful for the experience that we had and the amount of learning that we were able to to achieve off the back of that. And you know, all four of us have um, kind of gone on and, and had like quite fruitful and interesting careers. And it's been a it's been a good foundation of learning for for a lot of us in terms of what we've gone on to do. I think doing it again, like no, like we're <laughs> it's a we 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 are on different paths now, and also um, yeah, it was it, in, once was enough. Okay. Um, okay. <laughs> and then after that, you got a lot of learnings. You went back to London. Yep. What was next for you? Yeah. So next, I I ended up um, joining the the venture team at BCG, which was basically my my rationale for this is that I had spent the last five to six years of my life working and learning like a crazy amount with startups and in entrepreneurship and accelerators and VCs and kind of like everything in between, you know, there's, um, there's a lot of extra stuff that happened in the middle that I think was, was, was kind of like um, great learning experience. But I think ultimately I'd, there's, there's two things that I felt quite insecure about um, in myself that, at those points. I think one was really around not having like a brand name, um, associated to me and I think I have to say actually Hong Kong really made me feel slightly inadequate in terms of not having a, a rubber stamp shall we say um, in terms of you know a big brand that I'd worked for um, etc etc so um, that was I think a, a chip on my shoulder shall we say and I think another chip on my shoulder that also been there was just from a from a cash and an income point of view um, just really hadn't been in a position where I'd been able to you know, monetize and leverage all the stuff that I'd learned through throughout the years in terms of startups and early stage businesses in any kind of meaningful way. So when I joined BCG DV, it was for me an opportunity to kind of do a two for one on, on, on both of those things at the same time. 
to you know get a, a stamp from like the the best probably venture building um, organization in the world um, at the time you know backed by one of the biggest strategy consultancies um, together with you know like a stable paycheck where I I know how much income I'm getting every month and and that's kind of like fixed as opposed to well we'll see this month was a good month next month maybe not um, and this constant emotional financial roller coaster that you're riding not only a, an emotional roller coaster as well um, so so that that was really kind of like what um, led me to BCGDV and yeah it was a it was a pretty pretty great experience of course it's always nice to have a fixed paycheck but as i already know we had a little bit of discussion before this um, <laughs> things gets a little bit itchy so can you tell me a little bit what you're doing right now yeah so you know i, I spent about um a like a year and a half or so at bcgdv sort of worked in quite a few exciting ventures um but ultimately i think for me there's Part, part of my nature and, and, and whether it's a, a bug or a feature, uh, I think the jury's still out. Um, but I think part of it is I'm, I'm, I'm really want to always maximize for growth or at least at this kind of like stage of my life and, and my career, I always kind of like want to, to learn and want to grow. And I think that within corporates, you always have to be mindful of what it is that you're actually learning and gaining. And I think for me, after a certain point at DB, and I still have a lot of friends there and I really love a lot of the partners and a lot of the colleagues and, and, and everything that I learned. But I kind of realized that the journey paved ahead of me was just getting better and better at uh, managing politics and sort of positioning things. And, 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 and for me, I guess those just weren't kind of like really skills that I wanted to optimize for. And I felt like I kind of had gotten what I'd needed out of the time that I had there. So I basically then kind of stepped back out and just wanted to kind of get back into the trenches in a slightly more lean and agile kind of way. Um, so then for the next 18 months, up until very recently, I spent a bunch of time just being an, an advisor and a consultant across uh, product and growth for a variety of different early stage businesses and, and, and a few VCs here in London. Okay. That mean that you created for yourself a kind of like a buffer, kind of a runway to make that possible <laughs> or you were charging for those services? Yeah, no. So so um, it was it was good. I think that after after DV, I was, I was able to, to guess monetize that rubber stamp to some extent um so it was it was actually um decent decent income in terms of being able to charge like don't get me wrong like finding clients was was tough at certain points and i mean you know you've run an agency you know what it's like um but you know i i, I can't complain it was it was it was a good sort of year or 18 months or so um i still know what it's like to get <laughs> clients so don't worry yeah. about that especially yeah. in these times in these ages in these times because it's yeah. just an asshole to to make that work but okay yeah. can you also tell a little bit about what you're currently building yeah sure um so i'm i'm i'm, I'm working now on a company called um caliper and we're you know the vision is basically to try and create more fair and frictionless private markets um so we're we're, we're building a, a platform that kind of sits as an Initially, at the interface between um, early stage founders and their investors, um, and we're doing a whole bunch of stuff around like portfolio management for the VCs and sort of investor relations and KPI tracking for for the founders and the entrepreneurs on the other side. Um, and it's still very early days, but but directionally, that's kind of that's kind of where it, we're going. Okay, but with all your experience and your background, this would be the perfect thing. It's set up you you have everything under control you have a perfect business model canvas you have a perfect pitch deck you have perfect co-founder agreement or not yeah i mean like it's never perfect <laughs> um i mean look right like 
on, on, on paper, it makes sense. And I think my, the really interesting thing here is that my, I feel like my founder product market fit is, is, is incredibly strong. And I have really high conviction in that more so than, than any other business that I've built. Um, but also, you know, we're, we're coming off the back of COVID and, a, uh, you know, potentially about to go into like a global recession. I think investor confidence is in a slightly interesting place. Um, you know, it's nothing's ever perfect, especially when it comes to startups. It's always it's always messy and muddy, um, no matter how it might seem from the outside. Yeah. You know that. Yeah, of course. That's that's always it's a leading question. <laughs> It's still it's still people's work, right? It's not it's not only data. It's it's still people, and yeah. you have markets which you can or cannot always really predict. But there is so much going on, and especially when there is people involved and egos and personalities and and that kind of thing, it's it's it's, it's always a challenge. Absolutely. If there is quite often there is advice given eh? you, you, mm. you you've been an advisor also but there's quite often advice given general advice is there something that you often hear but you actually don't agree with hmm. often hear but don't agree with i think actually it's it, it's the whole premise of advice i would generally say you know hear everyone's advice but ultimately listen to yourself um and i think that there's there's this really funny way that things unfold where you know being an advisor and consultant and and ultimately everyone has an opinion and and everyone also really likes to play editor so for anything that's created uh, you know content wise or product wise it's always really easy for people to like spot the flaws and give feedback and give ideas etc cetera, etc cetera. i think the one thing that often i think founders get wrong is listening to too much advice especially from people who aren't their customers um, so, you know, sometimes I've, I've seen where founders have listened to their investors too strongly because they think that, you know, their investors have all this pattern recognition and they've seen so many startups and they must know what's right, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, that's that's ended up kind of like really hurting certain founders that I've worked with. Um, and conversely, you know, certain advisors who say they might have a lot of industry ex expertise in this kind of business um, that you're building. So it's like, you know, this person's been in the space for 20 years. They must know what they're talking about. They must, you know, if they say it can't be done, it can't be done. And it's actually, well, you know, actually, maybe it can be done. Maybe it's the fact that they've been in it for 20 years that's actually given them a little bit of tunnel vision around, like, what's possible and what isn't. Um, and so, you know, I, I think there's this whole space around advice and, and, and sort of being able to build a strong set of kind of, like, intuition um, and also conviction um, as a founder in terms of who to listen to and who not to and how to able to absorb all the information but ultimately synthesize it and make the decisions for yourself i think that's something that's really important that sometimes people get confused especially when the advice is coming from you know people of power or people with significant experience um i'd say that's probably one thing that that, that comes to mind okay what is the most valuable advice ever given to you most valuable advice something you're now passing on to others yeah um i think actually my my, my granddad before he passed away one of the things that he shared with me was um, the expression, it roughly translates into English as you can have it all, but not at the same time. Um, and I think it's sort of like great advice for life, but also I think great advice for, for building anything. You know, you can build all the features, <laughs> you, you know, you can, you can do the, the building and the selling and the, you know, the design, you can do it all, but never at the same time or never completely at the same time. So I think the importance of like prioritization and learning that, you know, it's, it's, just thinking through the sacrifices that you have to make across the different uh, like focus areas that you, you you need to have at a given time, 
I think that's uh, that's pretty timeless advice, at least for me. Okay. And what's something that's not a secret, but most people don't know about you? Not a secret, but most people don't know about me. Um, oh, interesting. Sorry, you're making me think now. Hmm. Most people don't know about me. Um, yeah, so um, I guess pro- probably the, the, the first one that came to mind is, uh, you know, via, via Hack Horizon, um, I think you, you met Christy as well. Um, so I think a lot of people didn't know that we were actually in a relationship, um, or at least it wasn't publicly known. Um, and a lot of people were surprised by that. Um, I think, yeah, the whole founding a business with your partner at the time, that's uh, it's, it's definitely not a secret, but definitely there's, there's, there's quite a few people that, that didn't know that and were surprised about that when they found out. That's the first thing that comes to mind, I guess, on a personal mm-hmm. level. Okay. And uh, would you do that again? or? It's funny, actually. We've, 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 we've joked about this, and I think we've both said that if we were to do it again, like in terms of the business building part, it would be a lot better. But I don't think either of us are currently in a, in a, in a, <laughs> in a space where, where we want to dive on that uh, journey. Okay. But I think it's, 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 it's fun, right? Because I, I think working with someone whilst you're also in a relationship with them, it's like you, you compound the highs and you compound the lows. So when, you're, when stuff's going great, you have someone to share that with who knows exactly why it's great and exactly why it's amazing. But then also when stuff's going bad, you, you, know, you have two people who are really in a shitty place. <laughs> and so like, how do you pull yourself out of that? So in, in many ways, it's like it, it's the, the emotional roller coaster just doubles in terms of uh, you know, the drops and the, the climbs. <laughs> okay. And if there's something you want people to take away from this talk, what would it be? What do you really want to drive home here? Um, I mean, th- th- there's a lot of things that we, we touched upon, but I think, um, you know, just kind of like maybe following up from what I was just saying about the emotional roller coaster. I think it's something that a lot of people who haven't been in startups can intuitively understand that it must be stressful to build a business and for stuff to go wrong and for stuff to go right and for you to kind of have to um, burden all that kind of like pressure and expectation and stress. But I think the um, the actual emotional experience of what that's like is fundamentally incredibly different. And even I would say just kind of like thinking through the people that I've worked with and, and sort of the teams that I've been involved with, even the difference between the person who's you know started the company and the person who's like employee number one or, or, or co-founder a couple of months later, the difference in terms of just the emotional experience of that is substantially quite different. Um, and I think it's something that a lot of people can can sympathize about, but very few people can empathize about. And I, I'd probably just say to to anyone who's who's out there thinking about starting something or currently in the trenches, um, yeah, emotionally it's, it's it's a roller coaster, and learning how to manage your emotional energy is probably the one of the most important things that you can do as an entrepreneur to make sure that you kind of have longevity. And part of that is resting, part of that is is recovering. But uh, I think it's it's something that. It's easy to understand, it's hard to feel, and it's even harder to then like manage on an emotional level. Okay. Um, I want to thank you for your valuable insights and sharing of your lessons learned in startups. Thanks, Jeffrey. For the listeners, although the rating system of podcasts is hideous, if you like the Mayor Cooper <laughs> series, you can rate this podcast with five stars as a motivation for the makers. Thanks to Museo Crowdbrain Hong Kong for being a venue sponsor for this episode, and thanks to Copy Ventures for making this series possible. This is Jeffrey Brewer, Go out and build something meaningful.